Welcome to the Azra Rap Podcast. I'm your host, Raj Gupta from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. How are you, Eric? I'm doing good, Raj. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And today we have two great guests with us, as always. We've got uh, Gary Schwartz, who's the director of acute pain management at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. I think I pronounced that correctly. Nice work. And uh, is a partner in the AABP pain group out there. And then, of course, with us, we've got uh, Eugene Viscusi, who many of you probably already know. He's the director of acute pain management at Jefferson University in Philadelphia as well. Thanks for joining us, Gary and Gene. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So before we get to today's topic, I just want to remind people of a couple of really, really important things for ASRA. First off, if you're going to the fall pain meeting, that's coming right around the corner, and uh, it's in Orlando, and if you haven't registered and feel like going, uh, especially after today's conversation, then uh, you can still do that. Um, They even have a day of meeting registration, so look that up at ASRA.com if you're interested in going to that meeting. Uh, Those are always fantastic things to attend. And then even uh, more exciting is the World Congress of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine that's coming up in the spring. They have already opened up the opportunity for submitting abstracts. So that's starting way earlier than usual. And the second thing is if you're in the, if you're a chronic pain fellow, they have a scholarship for up to 60 people to do a special hands-on cadaver lab on the Wednesday before the main meeting starts and it's going to be a subsidized uh, they have a stipend for fellows to come to that um, special workshop but you have to apply so go to azra.com look up the World Congress and look for the application for chronic pain fellows that's really exciting it's the first time we've done something like that at Azra, and I think you guys should check it out I think it's gonna be a really neat hands-on experience So our topic today is uh, this medication, buprenorphine, or a lot of people use one of the versions of it, Suboxone, in regular language. And we're not going to talk about uh, prescribing and all that kind of stuff for Suboxone. What we're really interested in today's topic is what do you do with somebody who comes in for surgery who's on Suboxone, on buprenorphine, and... Um, This might mean that they're coming in for elective surgery. This might mean they're coming in for a little tiny operation. Or this might mean they're coming in as an acute trauma patient. How do you handle that? And I think all of us that are on the panel have had to deal with this issue in various forms in our own institutions. And we got to talking and realized this is probably a problem for everybody. We have a couple of articles that we're going to use as sort of our foundation for this conversation. One is a review on uh, buprenorphine naloxone therapy and pain management. This is by Kelly Chen, and it was in anesthesiology in May 2014. We'll have the full reference in the show notes afterwards. And then the second article uh, just came out recently. It's called To Stop or Not, That is the Question. It's Acute Pain Management for the Patient on Chronic Buprenorphine. This is by... uh, Anderson, Quay, Ward, Wylands, Hilliard, and Brummett, and uh, they are publishing this in Anesthesiology June 2017, so that just came out a couple of months ago. And this is going to be the foundation of our conversation, but our, obviously our conversation will go to other places. 
I want to start it out by uh, sending it off to you, Eric, and tell us a little bit about how much of an issue uh, this has been for you guys uh, in Philadelphia. Um, we've definitely seen it with increasing frequency. I mean, a couple of years ago, we really weren't seeing almost any patients with, um, with, with buprenorphine coming in. And um, I think people are people are coming in for elective stuff and sometimes an even bigger issue is people are coming in for, like you mentioned, the trauma cases, people who come in where it's either urgent or emergent surgery and that patient happens to have taken buprenorphine in some form the day before and, you know, it's poorly controlled pain. You're trying to deal with how you can optimize these patients and come up with a plan in a pretty short period of time. A lot of times if you get kind of the uh, urgent ortho trauma add-on at the end of the day, for example, that we've probably all seen, uh, you don't always have time to get in consultation with a lot of people. So having some, I think, knowledge about the drug and, and how you would manage it is definitely helpful. But I think it's a, it's an issue that my whole department is um, facing. And I think a lot of people are, are uncomfortable or just don't have the uh, kind of the foundation to know how to deal with it. So that's pretty much what I've seen. And, and just to bounce off that real quick, uh, Eric, for people who don't know, why are we seeing it more? Um, well, I mean, I think there's there's pretty uh, decent evidence in, in some of the addiction literature that it is helpful for um, keeping some of these patients off of uh, the opi opioids that they were abusing. And it's just being uh, used more frequently in, uh, you know, in addiction medicine. So... Um, I think more, more and more people are using it as a, as an alternative to maybe methadone or some of the other things that were done in the past. I think to uh, explore a little on what Eric was saying is it allows people in the opiate treatment programs to be in an outpatient therapy treatment that they don't have to go to a methadone clinic daily or weekly. It allows them to get monthly dosing of the medication so they could hopefully reintroduce themselves into society. Also, I think, as everyone knows, we have an opiate ed epidemic in this country, so I believe more practitioners are using this medication, the Suboxone buprenorphine medication, to help get their patients off of opiates. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, in this conversation, we may express some frustration dealing with this, but the reality is it's probably helping a lot of people um, deal with a different major problem that we have, which is this opioid epidemic. And so we have to keep that in context. And we also have to realize that more and more of you out there are going to see this on a regular basis. This is not going to go away. Um, more people are going to come in for minor to major operations on buprenorphine. So Gene, I know you, you've, uh, we've talked, uh, in the past about buprenorphine and how to use it and you use it, um, probably more than, or, or have dealt with it more than any of us. Um, how do you approach somebody who's coming in for elective surgery that's been chronically on buprenorphine? That's the question. So <laughs> that's why I sent I it to you. That's why yeah. I thought you could give me the good answer. So before I delve right into that, I would say um, we are seeing uh, a dramatic rise in the use of buprenorphine for the treatment of substance abuse disorder primarily because uh, unlike methadone, it really does um, allow uh, patients to be more functional and return to, to um, productive life. 
Um, our conversation is around Suboxone, but there are other buprenorphine uh, treatments for substance abuse disorder. One that you're going to see more of, I've only seen a couple patients, but they have these uh, implantable systems that elude buprenorphine for months, and one of those is uh, probufine. So while we can talk about how do we approach it, the, the reality is I think we're going to see more patients who have implantable systems, and there's no question in, in terms of decision to continue or not to continue. So, you know, my take on this is, is that buprenorphine uh, is also a potent analgesic, and we're also seeing chronic pain patients being transitioned to buprenorphine from high-dose opioids. So it may not just be substance abuse disorder. For patients who are in recovery and they're doing well, the worst thing we can do in the perioperative space is open windows of opportunity where they um, may um, go back to the use of opioids. And there are actually now a number of lawsuits out there where um, patients have um, uh, gone back to uh, their substance abuse um, and in some cases have died. Um, so this is no minor problem. And when trying to balance this, you also have to consider that these are patients who are profoundly opioid tolerant and in whom opioids are not likely to work well, which leads to the natural um, conclusion that I think you have to move away from the concept that opioids are mandated and required and that indeed a complex multimodal approach is going to work as well um, and sometimes better than thinking that you can provide high dose opioids to these patients. So that's the, the long way of saying my approach is that I do not discontinue Suboxone. I continue it through the whole perioperative process and layer it on top of my multimodal approach. Another thing that is not widely discussed in the pain literature is the concept of receptor occupancy. So it's not just being on buprenorphine all or nothing, it's how much. So while buprenorphine has this incredible binding affinity and will displace other opioids, you can estimate estimate from the literature in addiction medicine how many receptors are occupied. So if you're on a relatively low dose, like eight milligrams a day, you still have a fair amount of receptors unoccupied if you wanted to supplement. When you get around 16 milligrams a day, you are in the high 90s. And um, above that, say around 24, you pretty much have 100% of your receptors occupied. And you're really not gonna get much better analgesia from a traditional opioid at that point. And, and, and well, I, I wanna point out that if people refer back to the um, articles we mentioned, one of them does recommend um, taking people off buprenorphine. So I want people to realize that there is no hard and fast rule on how this works. Um, there are people still exploring the right way to handle this. And Gene's point of view is uh, is probably further along than many people have even thought about how to handle buprenorphine in these uh, perioperative arenas. So th this is a moving target. So don't be surprised if you hear variations in protocols. I think it's also to differentiate between elective and emergent. For an elective case, 
They go to the PAT anesthesia clinic, and we could talk to the provider who is providing the buprenorphine, and we talk to the patient, and some patients and their providers would like them to be off before. They monitor them daily. We've even had people stay in the hospital prior to surgery. Some patients do not want to touch another opiate. They'd rather continue their buprenorphine in the perioperative period. So with the elective case, you have the option of talking to the patient, talking to the referring provider or the prescriber of the medication. And obviously, as Eugene said, with the implant, you really can't take it out so easily. It lasts for up to six months in the patient. And you talked to them about all the multimodal analgesia that you could offer them, regional anesthesia, epidural, paravertebral blocks, Tylenol, NSAIDs, and you make a plan with the surgeon and the patient. So everyone is in agreement prior to the elective surgery. I would add one thing uh, that a vast um, number of patients who are receiving Suboxone are actually prescribed by primary care providers, not um, experts in addiction medicine. So one of the challenges that we have is that there are indeed some patients who are uh, receiving care from really, really competent addiction medicine specialists. We often get into trouble with these primary care providers who have their Suboxone certification and have no idea what the perioperative space is about and often make recommendations that um, are not appropriate and are not really capable of picking up the care of these patients um, upon discharge. So I would I would urge caution, and I would also say it's important to have a system uh, in your institution and perhaps um, go to people who can care for these patients. Don't assume that that prescriber um, is uh, fully competent uh, to pick a, this up. That's a very good point, Eugene. As Eugene was mentioning before, to prescribe buprenorphine, and it's in the article, you either could be a board certified in addiction medicine, as some people are, or to get the license at first, you just need an eight-hour certification course. That's a much lower threshold. <laughs> no, yeah, it's really, you could sign up for an eight-hour course, you pass the course, and then you can get a first initial limit of patients to prescribe the medication. I was just going to chime in. This is this is Eric again. If you if you look um, without getting too heavily into the articles, but if but just if you glance at um, the figure, figure one in uh, in Brummett's, um, I guess actually it's uh, it's Anderson's article, but but Chad Brummett was part of that group. Um, they they basically are looking at elective surgery and the decision to proceed or or not or what how to manage uh, somebody going for moderate to severe pain type surgery. So I think that's a lot of what we're probably talking about. That's orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, the more painful ENT cases, maybe not the tonsils and stuff, but for the more painful cases, um, the, the implication there is sort of surgery should be canceled and patients should be weaned off and and, and um, be placed on short acting opioids. I think that's um, that, that may work for a certain percentage of patients. I don't know what percentage of patients exactly, but I also have some um, psychiatrist uh, colleagues of mine that I talk to and I'm friends with, and some of them do pre uh, both prescribe uh, buprenorphine, um, Suboxone, and the other forms. And I, th I think you really have to do an individual assessment of patients in terms of the risk of relapse to opioids, as Gene kind of hinted at. If this is a patient who's stopping uh, buprenorphine three days before surgery is going to go out and inject heroin the next day because the because the 
urge is so great, then that's clearly not the right decision in that patient. So you're going to have to find a way around it. And I really think that uh, you need to talk to the person prescribing it. Now, of course, if the person prescribing it is not a knowledgeable person, that's an issue. But you, you would like to think that, uh, you know, a fair amount of patients, especially if they're on it for the purpose of uh, opioid addiction and rather than pain control, um, you can have a, some sort of a conversation as to the risk of relapse with opioids. And that clearly will play a role into whether you tell them to hold it for a few days or whether you can, um, you know, still provide good analgesia with multimodal agents. And, and don't forget regional anesthesia. If the procedure is amenable to regional techniques, then clearly I think with or without buprenorphine uh, in the system, you can have good analgesia. I want to interrupt the conversation for a second to bring up a couple of things just to make sure we're clear for people listening who don't get exposed to buprenorphine that much. So let's be clear if someone is on buprenorphine and they come in and they have or they receive, uh, I'm going to be clear even better, if they're on Suboxone, so the combination buprenorphine and naloxone combination, and then they receive opioids in the perioperative period, what is the concern that you have primarily um, in the immediate uh, delivery time of that opioids? Is it just the lack of efficacy of the opioids, or is there a withdrawal component that you worry about as well? So I, I can take that question. Um, if your receptors are already occupied, there will not be withdrawal. On the other hand, if you are actively using heroin and then you administer buprenorphine, it will act as an antagonist. So when you, so Gene, when you're talking about caution, um, you were you were saying exercise caution with some providers in the community who don't have familiarity with buprenorphine as much. Are you worried more about them holding the medication or them getting it started back up after it's been held for a period of time? And they're and, and we send them home on opioids for post-op pain. Right. Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. I, I don't think that those providers understand that. Uh, buprenorphine is actually an incredibly analgesic drug and that it will be adequate pain relief for most patients and you have to set expectations um, but when it's stopped you you open up this huge window where then you hand the patient a bottle of opioids to go home and uh, it's it's a it's a big risk it's a it's, it's a tremendous risk that these patients will relapse um, the other uh, point I wanted to make is um, if they're on buprenorphine and then you administer other opioids, the effectiveness of that other opioid depends on the dose of buprenorphine. Um, so if you're on a relatively low dose, like four milligrams, you still have quite a few opioid receptors open and available. And I think this confuses our surgeons and some of our providers who uh, have patients who are on buprenorphine and they've maybe started PCA and they see the patient actually get some benefit. Um, that They therefore draw the conclusion that they can always do that. But the real um, crux of the situation is what is the total dose of buprenorphine? If you're on 16 or 24 milligrams a day, all of the receptors are pretty much occupied. 
and no opioid is going to work. If you're on a very low dose, like four to eight milligrams a day, then supplemental opioids might actually have some benefit in analgesia. But again, these patients are so opioid tolerant. Um, opioids should not be um, the primary uh, analgesic weapon. The, um, the other issue that I uh, stumble upon a little bit is, you know, you mentioned the implants um, for buprenorphine, and then there's also transdermal patches for buprenorphine. Um, do you treat, I guess the question I'm asking is, if we're moving to a world where people are on buprenorphine on continuous therapy of some form or another, should we all be moving to protocols that just don't eliminate buprenorphine from the schedule, from their, from their plan, and learn to deal with buprenorphine in the perioperative period for whoever comes in. I think we're going to have to learn to deal with it because the implant, unless you're going to surgically remove it, it's continually giving the medication. And I'm sure with the the opiate issue in our country and the government doing more research and funding, we're going to see more people with it. So I think it's imperative that each department and hospital makes their plan for these medications to expect patients to come in with it and expect to probably keep them on it and deal with it while they're an inpatient. So my question is, as an advocacy group, as ASRA and people who are thought leaders in this, should we move to a world where we're getting away from the discussion at all about when do you stop it, when do you not stop it, when do you hold it for this amount of time and restarting it? If we're moving to a world where there's so many, there's going to be a larger number of people on continuous buprenorphine therapy that you can't stop, like the implants, the patches, arguably, you can sort of stop them, but they're not quite as predictable in the same way. Um, should we stop talking about algorithms that involve holding it pre-surgery and move towards algorithms like Gene is discussing, which is how to manage them intraoperatively depending on their dose? So I would argue that someday that is the direction this whole discussion will go. Um, so it's easy to just mandate everybody continues their buprenorphine and that solves that problem. Right, right. The problem is that these patients still are not going to get adequate pain relief with any opioid alone. So that has to be considered within a fairly aggressive multimodal approach. And that may, uh, what is available may vary with the institution. So, you know, here, they will get ketamine perioperatively, intraoperative lidocaine, a block, um, the full gamut of oral multimodal. But out in the community, those resources may not be available. And then these patients may not do quite as well. So I, th I think it's important to stress it's continue the buprenorphine within the context of whatever um, multimodal regimens you can uh, put together. In addition to what Eugene was saying, some hospitals have protocols. Let's say if you're on a lidocaine infusion, you have to be in a monitored setting or ketamine infusion for that matter. Like in, for my institution, if you're on a ketamine infusion, you have to be in a monitored setting. And there's just a limited amount of yeah, monitored beds. Chief, um, that's a whole other that's a topic for a whole other podcast, probably. But that being said, I think Azra's going to have something to say about that uh, with the upcoming uh, ketamine guidelines coming out that are kind of supporting the idea that you really don't have to be in an ICU or, or a monitored setting. You obviously have to have some level of monitoring. But nevertheless, the what you're talking about is a real issue in that 
a lot of practices like I like presumably yours are not comfortable having patients uh, with ketamine infusions on a general medical floor yet. So we're maybe working towards that, but I think your point's completely valid and that um, that may not be an option everywhere. So maybe the, the more aggressive oral multimodal agents are things that you could do. Um, you know, you, you do you do what you can with the resources you have. And regional anesthesia, like I mentioned, for sure, should be available to virtually anybody. Um, I was going to ask a little bit of a slightly different question, but let's say you have the patient who's taking buprenorphine really for analgesia. There's no opioid history, and I've had several of these patients. That's why I brought it up. But there's no history of opioid abuse. It was not being done for addiction. It's buprenorphine in one form or another, whether it's um, – Subutex or Suboxone or some sort of other uh, form of buprenorphine is just for pain. What would you recommend to those people who are having elective surgery or those people that you would maybe be a little more likely to have them stop at three days before? Or do we take the same approach to Gary? What do you have you had any experience with that? Yes, we have some of these patients. Again, I do it on a case by case basis because some people they don't have necessarily opiate addiction per se, but when you talk to them, they were taking very high doses and family members were concerned or they didn't want to be on the dose anymore. So I've had patient a couple of weeks ago came for a total knee arthroplasty and he's like, I never want to touch another opiate again. He said he just, he didn't like the feeling of it. He didn't think he was addicted. His prescriber didn't think he was addicted and he just kept on the Suboxone the whole perioperative period. We put a femoral catheter, a popliteal and let him just continue the suboxone along with other multimodal in the post-operative period. So I, I believe it's a case-by-case basis for those patients because some of them never want to touch an opiate again. Yeah, I actually had a, I had a patient recently who was in a um, pretty major trauma and was on suboxone. It was a heroin abuser. So this was, again, another case of an opioid ab- uh, abuse history. Um, and he also, like Gary said, he didn't want the opioids we were trying to give him because he was hurting so bad. Um, he didn't want anything to do with them. So I, I think that there is this group of people out there and it's changing, it's evolving that are taking buprenorphine and as a way out of uh, ever getting exposed to opioids. And I think that there's a growing number of very intelligent, very knowledgeable people who know that their risk of uh, becoming dependent on opioids is fairly high if they stop it. I'm I'm starting to lean towards Gene's point of view that I don't see a lot of indication for stopping it on anybody. It's it's a hard it's a hard case to argue. <laughs> it's persuasive. You know, one point that that I would make is that you know, we have this belief that opioids are these incredibly powerful agents and you know, you will find in American medicine a um, bias toward the use of opioids and this belief that you can uh, treat all pain if you give enough opioids. And, you know, the data really doesn't support that. Um, you know, beyond 100 milligram equivalents of morphine a day, there's very little evidence that you get better analgesia. So, uh, you know, really all opioids have ceiling effects. Uh, if you look at care outside the U.S., there's many countries um that are developed uh, countries throughout Europe who just don't discharge patients on opioids after major surgery. So one of the challenges here is is this pro-opioid bias that they're mandated. You have to use them in your anesthetic, you have to use them post-op, and it's just not true. When you look at the large reviews, the Cochrane reviews, 
the efficacy of opioids is on the order of NSAIDs and acetaminophen. Um, so that's something we have to get across to our colleagues. They're not mandatory or the best. They are one tool and they may not even uh, be better than other analgesics. One small, very quick follow-up point to that. I, I talk about this in a, in a talk that I do on uh, opioid sparing analgesia, but there there was a study that looked at, um, it, it was a, I believe a, an African uh, orthopedic uh, physicians in a survey, survey kind of study, and it compared uh, what they usually prescribe after the same procedure done in the U.S. and the the American physicians were much more likely to prescribe opioids for the same exact procedure. And um, it, it, I think that just kind of goes to the point of of what's cultural, what has become accepted, and what has been always done. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. I mean, there's other differences between the populations, but there's something inherent in um, a desire to prescribe opioids that seems to exist here. I, I find it pretty commonly that when I see a patient of mine who's on a fairly decent dose of opioids and they've been on it for a while, if I ask a series of questions, I get almost 100% reliable answers. Um, if I say, how long have you been on your opioids? And if it's longer than a few months, I ask them, are they working for you anymore? The answer is always no, but they're still on them. And so, like Gene said, you know, they're, they're taking these medications more to prevent the withdrawal at that point than they are to provide them analgesia. And so now they're just recurring opioid users without any benefit to themselves um, or, their, or their functional ability. I want to wrap up with one other uh, question for you guys, which is the um, contrary side to any new medication being used more, which is uh, we're starting to hear more and more people use Suboxone, use buprenorphine as a drug of abuse now, uh, Subutex or however they're getting it. Theoretically, the naloxone component should prevent that, but we're hearing more and more people are using it as a street drug now. Are you guys encountering that, and what do you think about that? Eric? I, I'm i trying to think. I don't think I've seen, personally, in the past couple of years, I, I've, I've heard kind of anecdotes about it. I haven't seen it personally. Gene is on service more. He may have seen it there there is definitely a signal for um suboxone abuse it's it's now emerging as a, a primary uh, abuse drug in prisons because you can mail it and uh, it's invisible when they x-ray letters so uh, there's definitely that component the the naloxone only becomes uh expressed if you try to defeat the carrier um so if you try to dilute it and then inject it or snort it, then the naloxone is visible. But if you keep the, the film intact, um, it's an opioid. You, you still get some opioid benefit um, from um, you know, misuse of the drug. The other thing is that there is quite a bit of um, illegal use of Suboxone just as a um, temporizing measure to prevent withdrawal. So, um, you know, patients or abusers will, will substitute buprenorphine um, if they need an opioid. And, and it does have street value from that standpoint. Gary, are you guys seeing that up in New York? Yeah, you, you hear about it sometimes because now people are worried about the amount of doses of opiates they're prescribing and people are prescribing less and less. So as you guys have all seen in your practices, People have been on opiates for 10 years. If they could stop getting the drug, they're going to look for another choice. Some people don't want to use heroin. 
uh, and Suboxone is available, it might be a safer alternative, as Eugene was saying, to prevent withdrawal for these patients. And it, it doesn't have a, as much of a stigma as some of the other drugs now. So unfortunately, when people want to abuse something that is, as he was saying, has some opiate effects and it has a ceiling effect after 32 milligrams, so at a lower dose, you do get the opiate effect. People will find a way to use and abuse it, unfortunately. I find that we're trapped uh, constantly between these um, uh, struggles between trying to provide a new form of care in these situations and then keeping up with the pace with which that new form of care is abused um, and then trying to find an alternative to that one. Um, it reminds me of the stories of, uh, you know, uh, developing uh, uh, cultures where they introduce a predator to get rid of a rodent and then the predator becomes a problem and then they introduce a new predator to that one and then that one becomes a problem. And I feel like we're chasing our tail on this issue. I do think buprenorphine is probably the better of our uh, solutions out there, but especially when I start hearing news about fentanyl being abused now, the growing rise of heroin, um, you know, people abusing propofol, and it boggles my mind the things that people will go to seek out and abuse, um, which we are very careful to use in our environment. So um, I think people will need to know more about buprenorphine. This, these articles are helpful. I think the really important part of this conversation is, is keep paying attention to this. This discussion is ongoing. The, the jury's uh, still out on how to take care of these patients properly, um, but you're going to see more of them, and the delivery mechanisms are changing, so that's going to affect our decision-making. I want to thank you guys for uh, joining the conversation. Eric, Gene, Gary, I think this was a really interesting conversation, and it's something I know that I deal with in practice every day. And I want, I want to remind everybody, go to the ASRA.com website. There's a couple things uh, I want to remind you of. One, of course, is the World Congress, which is coming up. It's going to be a fantastic meeting. We've got a couple of shows coming up soon that we're trying to schedule where we're actually going to talk to the organizers of the meeting to go into detail about some of the really special things that they've got planned coming up. So keep an ear out for those podcasts coming up in the next month or so. And then um, and go check out the website and see all the details about the meeting. But then always I want to remind you about the educational section of the ASRA website. If you go to the educational resources, there is frequent updates of new information on a variety of topics. And I have a feeling that we're going to see more and more topics in this area of buprenorphine management uh, show up on that website as well. But uh, I thank all of you guys for listening, and uh, we will talk to you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks. Learned a lot, as always.